Where is the horse and the rider? Where is the horn that was blowing? They have passed like rain on the mountains, like wind in the meadow. The days have gone down in the west, behind the hills, into shadow. This is My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. How did it come to this? Ride out with me. Ride out and meet them. For death and glory. For Rohan. For your people. I'm Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. And I'm Emily, also known as JRR Tweeting. Today's episode is The Hour We Draw Swords Together, as we finish up the Battle of Helm's Deep. But first, our spoiler warning. While the ring may have passed out of all knowledge and memory, these movies haven't. We will provide recaps in every episode, but we assume you know these films well enough, and we will also be greedily delving into the source text, interviews, commentaries, and maybe even the Hobbit films. So for our discussion today, we are going to debate which world religion is correct. <laughs> Emily? Yes. Uh, let's. What's the most? Mormonism. Mormonism. Obviously Mormonism. <laughs> Well, this this uh, this podcast has an axe to grind with Mormonism specifically. We still hate the rings of power, so um, that kind of works. Uh, no, we're actually uh, going to forego our discussion today. Uh, we're just going to keep this one short and sweet and focus on the ride of the Rohirrim. But uh, what we do want to say is kind of give you a roadmap of what our coverage is going to look like as we're winding down the two towers. Um, we are going to take a little bit of a break before Return of the King. Um a, I think the big news is I think me and Emily in some fashion want to cover Secession, which season four is premiering at the end of March, which kind of syncs up exactly with the end of our Two Towers coverage. So we feel like that would just kind of be fun to spend a couple of weeks riffing on that show, which is kind of fun in a way that doesn't require a lot of research and analysis like our Lord of the Rings episode does. And I think we're just mega fans and love to speak to it. Uh, anything you want to add about Secession, Emily? Um, I'm going to be doing at the back 30 minutes of every single Succession episode. I'm going to be doing uh, an extensive audio fanfic uh, comparing everyone in Succession to Aragorn's uh, reign, starting with uh, Tom Wamsgans as uh, movie Faramir. <laughs> oh, God, this is going to be unhinged. <laughs> uh, on also, on top of finishing the two towers, we will probably be scheduling a live watch of the two towers, which we will probably do in our Discord. So you can sign up for our Discord at patreon.com slash my bro, my cat, my pod. Um, that will probably be sometime in April or May. Uh, we haven't really had a chance to figure out when that lines up for our schedules, but be on the lookout. Just like with Fellowship, we will do a live watch where me and Emily give our wonderful commentary where we try not to repeat all the things we said on the podcast episodes covering the show. And uh, finally, um, while we will possibly be pivoting to Secession, um, there are some episodes based on Lord of the Rings that we are going to get out before we get to Return of the King. Um, we have a character episode on Aragorn we want to do before his titular movie, essentially. Um, we want to do an episode on Weta Workshop because there's a lot going on there, both during the Lord of the Rings and ever since, especially with the focus on the labor issues. Um, we'll also probably look at some of the book-only stuff from the Two Towers uh, before we get to Return of the King. So we have a lot of Lord of the Rings stuff coming. We have a lot of other stuff coming. Um, and 
We still plan to roughly drop episodes every week. If for any reason our schedules means we can't, um, we may reshift some of the Patreon stuff so no one feels like they're losing out or subscribing to podcasts that isn't posting regular content. So we will keep you updated on all of that. Things aren't looking so hot. War does indeed suck ass, as Faramir famously said, and trying to fight an offensive war when you're literally backed into a corner is not, as it transpires, actually a good call. The order comes, carried on the stormy winds, to fall back to the Hornburg's impressive keep. As if to underscore the futility of the situation, Middle-earth's favorite Department of Defense contractor, Haldir, is killed. <laughs> With haunting elvish music to soundtrack his fall, he dies in Aragorn's arms. At this point, the movie takes a surprising turn, flashing forward into the second year of Aragorn's reign, where he is forced through a decade's worth of congressional hearings, only to cap it all off with a cloying action movie investigating the event, inexplicably starring Jim from The Office. We came... We saw, he died. <laughs> Mad Lad Theoden is off to the gate, sword in hand, presumably to do what 60-year-old rich men are best at, getting in the way of people just trying to do their jobs. Aragorn, young and spry, and Gimli, possibly that, literally escape out the side door of the keep, <laughs> send my regards <laughs> to the architect who thought to include that smoking door. We get possibly one of the worst scenes in the series here, the dwarf tossing scene, which I will not dignify with either a summary or jokes. And then the Soaring Fellowship theme kicks in as, in true Errol Flynn fashion, swashbuckling Aragorn and Gimli push back hundreds of orcs all by their lonesome. But, of course, two men against an entire army is not great odds, so the proper weapons of siege warfare arrive, enormous ladders that can only be delayed, never fully repelled. On this sad note, we depart briefly to the Ents and fucking Osgiliath before we return to some really class moodiness from a despondent Theoden, declaring that shit's fucked, time to go home. Quick cut to Eowyn doing what women do best, crying, looking scared, hugging. Somehow this insanely batshit regressive take on women is entirely new to this movie and not at all present in the books, written by a Catholic Tory man in 1955, but... Whatever, don't think too hard about it. We're going back to Legolas flipping a table in a very funny fashion with some ace sound effect work as he helps to barricade the door. But all of that, all of that is just set dressing for this. Let this be the hour when we draw swords together. Fell deeds awake. Now for wrath, now for ruin, and the red dawn! 
my friends, is cinema. And really, I'm only talking here so we don't get slapped with the DMCA takedown, because this bit needs no introduction and warrants listening to in full. Clarendon King stands alone. Not alone. Go hit him! Our scenes today open up with a coordinated retreat as ordered by Theoden. He watches as the Urukai swarm in through the breach in the deeping wall. The three hunters are doing their thing on the ground, Legolas wielding his dual knives, something that I love to see and hear in action, but it's all not enough to withstand Isengard. Theoden tells them to fall back, and Aragorn calls out to Haldir to fall back from his position on the wall itself. The audio cues even before Haldir's death tells you things are not looking good. Sad strings play over loud, muffling the din of battle and Aragorn screams for Haldir to come. Probably my favorite shot is the two guys having to carry Gimli away from battle. He's just a little guy who wants to fuck up orcs. <laughs> Haldir, bloody sword in hand, receives the orders and has his elven comrades retreat as well. But Haldir takes a shot to the gut from an Uruk blade, and despite taking out that guy, the writing is on the wall. Everything slows down, Haldir looks at the blood on his hands, and watches as elves and men are fleeing back to the keep. He has no reinforcements. Another Uruk hatchets him from, be from behind, and Haldir falls to his knees, and we get a close-up on Haldir, and then a look at the dead elves on the wall, the immortal ones he led to an ignoble end. The music here is known as the Lament for Haldir, which is a haunting little piece sung in Quenya by Elizabeth Fraser just as with the lament for Gandalf in Fellowship of the Ring. Emily, do you want to take a shot at these lyrics? Sure can. So they are, in Quenya, Arsindomerlio caeta mornier, ar ilia tier udulave lumbele. Um, and the mornier, again, it's one of these words that, it's a, it's just a poetic word, uh, it means uh, night, I believe. Uh, it shows up in quite a few of the, the Quenya lyrics that they use in uh, this uh, in, in these movies. They've got Mornier Etulien in uh, Fellowship. And then I believe actually in the Elizabeth Fraser solo they have in Return of the King when the when the eagles show up, I believe it is. Yeah, it's the eagles show up. She's doing that great operatic solo. Uh, she's also singing something there with the, this night reference. And it is, it's good. It's a bit, it's a good bit of poetry, but it's also a nice bit of connection, connectivity, whatever, <laughs> connective tissue to mm -hmm. uh, the poetic language that Tolkien used and the Silmarillion. A lot of the, these sort of, you know, it's easy to be like, oh, well, all poets use day and night <laughs> motifs uh, in their writing, which is true. But I think there's something about like in ensuring that you're not going too far off piste with the the kind of poetry that you're using here. And, and, and by kind of keeping that really tight connection to that potentially overused trope within Tolkien's own writing, the day and night cycle um, is just a nice bit of work there. 
Yeah, and a full translation of those lines is out of a gray country, darkness lies, or nighttime, yeah. as Emily just went over, and all paths are d- drowned deep in shadow. And apparently these lyrics are lifted from Namarie, which is Galadriel's lament. Um, I don't know anything about this. Do you, Emily? Uh, yes, so Galadriel sings Namarie uh, as the... Uh, as the Jesus Christ, who are these guys? The Fellowship. I don't know why I was going to the squad in my head, like a zoomer. Uh, As the Fellowship are departing Lothlorien, (laughs) she stands on a boat and sings, kind of like that bit in uh, in a non-Fellowship in the other movie that is like this in Apocalypse Now. In the director's cut, there's some uh, when they're in the like base, uh, the USO base, right after, and he's tripping balls on acid there's some chick standing in the river singing it's kind of like that <laughs> except galadriel uh so it's not at all the same but my brain has only so many things that it can hold in it um yeah and so galadriel's lament is, is basically just this kind of the sadness and sorrow of the elves it's fitting because haldir is apparently the march warden of lothlorien just rented out to elrond briefly so it's this whole kind of connecting the the kind of the the elves of galadriel's ken of of Gladriel's keep uh, together through her sort of watchful musical eye. Yeah, no, like you said, he was rented out. He's a sword for hire, uh, a mercenary, a Blackwater agent, <laughs> whatever you Prince. want to call it. Uh, <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> Aragorn fights his way up the wall so Haldir can die in his arms, which is just a bit too convenient for me, but whatever. Aragorn then proceeds to go on tilt, or if you prefer basketball to poker, goes hero mode, launching three-pointers from half-court. By which I mean he takes on a bunch of Uruks by himself, and then rides a ladder down into a mess of them. (laughs) Not really that smart, but Haldir was one of Aragorn's hugging buddies, so I get it. (laughs) So like the elvish arrival we discussed previously, I don't have strong feelings about this scene. Stealing a page from Emily's script and saying this is probably the point where I'm like, this is a little too Aragorn focused, because unlike his Christified skinny dipping, this doesn't lead to anything near as cool as the double door shot. <laughs> Haldir, especially as a theatrical edition sicko, doesn't really mean a whole lot to me, the average going movie guy. So it's less I'm sad he's dead and more I'm sad all these elves marched here to die. Yeah, which is like, high, like I guess in that sense, like the, the scene is effective because I feel like that is really they're all trying to get mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. to feel. But then I'm also like, oh, wow, there is an elf here that has a clear connection to Gladriel, who is dying in Aragorn's arms. What could we possibly connect that to that is a key component of Aragorn's characterization in these films and also inexplicably this plot, the plot in this movie. Hmm, I wonder if we could do something to connect this to Arwen at all. And they just don't do it. And like, you know, I'm not the fucking movie genius here. I don't know how to make movies good or work or whatever. But like, I feel like they had the collective brain power on their writing team and directing and creative team to like, figure out a way to make that kind of closeness that tethering to the question of like elvish death um and and mortality and whether you know the ability to die truly is the gift of men um and and you know haldir now going back to the halls of bandos to wait his time until he can be reborn again where he'll just kind of have to do this over and over and over until they fight the final war against morgoth like it would have been more interesting to me if they had found some way to connect this to arwen especially since they are so obviously desperate to connect arwen to the the wider plot anyways i feel like instead of just doing a generic man war really is 
sad, isn't it? Um, it would have been nice to have found a way to to kind of really double down on like what does seeing an elf die mean for Aragorn, who who has this constant question of like elf death, elf and safety, if you will, uh, hanging over <laughs> his head all of the time. I feel like they could maybe accomplish something like that instead of having like Haldir just fall dead into Aragorn's arms. If he's still there, he can literally just put one of his hands on Aragorn's chest onto the even yep. star necklace. Um, so it can like, oh, is he touching Aragorn's heart? Is he like referring to Arwen? You just it vaguely kind of hints at that and kind of reinforces the whole Arwen of it all. I think that would have been easy, especially since they set up that scene with Legolas giving the even star back to Aragorn. Um, so to have it tie in with like the last elvish stuff that really matters in this movie would have made a lot of sense. Yeah. And I think there's also kind of a way to keep in that kind of the whole like futility of war and dying element to it that that's originally there, which is like um, mm -hmm. Arwen is revered um, and, and Aragorn obviously like esteems Arwen very highly. Like, like his first reference to her is a reference to Luthien and and. Uh, I have talked ad nauseum about how fucking crazy I think that is and how like demeaning it is. But like that is, is, is his way of uh, bestowing his respect on her and and everyone esteems Arwen and thinks she is this this absolutely incredible thing. And so there cannot be a futility to either her life or her death. And it is the it, like it is a it is a burden borne by all of the people around her to ensure that there is no futility to to anything about her. Um, and I think to have something like Haldir who. Um, by virtue of being an elf, um, represents all of the things that are not futile. Um, it would have been a good way to kind of connect these two things. And then, you know, uh, Elrond spiel about how it would be awful for um, Arwen to have to carry on after Aragorn's death. Like, Aragorn gets a kind of mini taste of that in the death of Haldir. And even though it's not, like, it is a futile death, but it's also like a noble death like he is dying doing something good mm -hmm. um it's just that the goodness of this thing that he is doing like it, it sucks and it's uncomfortable and like if aragorn got to experience that for even a minute like it would be nice to be to see some way of him changing his opinion on the entire arwen question because like really the last time we've kind of seen him deal with that question in, in any real sense um besides his wet dreams is being like no it is good that arwen is going and it would be nice to see this be his like okay, death and war are, are like things that we cannot escape and there is a sort of emptiness to them. But nevertheless, these moments that I have had with like my pal, my hugging buddy Haldir were like good and worthwhile moments. Um, and that does not mean that, that um, you know, Arwen and, and I should deprive ourselves of those feelings just because death is inevitable for us both. All that said, I kind of like the juxtaposition with what's going on with the Ents to the Elves, ignoring all legendarium concerns. <laughs> there is a certain realism to having allies show up to help you, and then you all just get mowed down together in the end anyways. Whereas the Ents are going to join in the war of wizards and men and rout the forces of Isengard, joining the war by no means guarantees victory. It only guarantees death. So in that sense, I like this moment as a wake-up call or brutal reminder that rushing off to war has downsides. The fact that these elves had a chance of immortal life and instead were killed because of Elrond and Galadriel FaceTiming too much. Yeah, you know, that kind of sucks. <laughs> so going back to our previous Helm's Deep episode, I want to wrap up some of our breakdowns we started for posterity's sake, you know. Strategically, we picked up with a coordinated retreat as the deeping wall is abandoned and all forces fall back to the Hornburg. 
Rohan will be able to reinforce the main gate better now, which they are able to hold for a bit, of that, thanks to Aragorn and Gimli, but they are unable to destroy the battering ram. Eventually, the main gate gives away and everyone falls back to the inner keep. Yeah, so... I think one of the things that's really important to talk about with the strategy here is like the reason that the strategy is clear to us is because these scenes have a really good sense of geography. And this is something that we talked about um, in in both the setup episode for this episode and then also as Gileath as like kind of two sides of the coin here. Um, and I think it is important to, to talk about like the very clear sense of geography in these scenes as well to point out that you can, in fact, um, keep your audience aware of what the scene is actually laid out like even at moments of high high tension high intensity um and without sacrificing that tension and intensity um and i think in comparison it makes osgiliath uh, just look all the more sort of outlandishly bad um because they are able to to maintain this so well and also because by virtue of having that clear sense of location and sort of like fence posting sign posting it makes the kind of terror of their strategy rapidly falling apart seem all the real real more real to us um which is just such a key component of making helms deep as unbelievably successful as it is that's really well said the uruks bring their breaching asset into the inner keep now where it looks like doom for our boys in courage and desperation a hail mary charge is ordered just as the uruks burst into the great hall Fourth Air Lingus and all that jazz. They cut their way through the Hornburg and clear the causeway. Just as battle is about to be joined, the White Rider and a whole lot of horsemen show up. And this cavalry charge will win the day, eventually forcing a retreat of the surviving Urukai, who are going to shortly learn that the axe forgets, but the tree remembers. More importantly, I want to pick up with Tom H.'s wrestling breakdown of Helm's Deep. In our first part, we walk through the introduction, the shine, and the heat, the last is which the enemies get the upper hand for the first time, the death of Haldir and the overflow of Uruks into the Deeping Wall being the end of that. Next comes the comeback, where our heroes fight back for some modest gains. This is where Theoden draws his sword for the first time in battle, leaving his perch atop the proceedings and heading down to the main gate. At the gate, Theoden takes a wound to the shoulder, but absolutely necks a guy with a spear, which is pretty cool. <laughs> Aragorn and Gimli arrive, but not Legolas, whose ranged attacks make more sense manning the taller walls of the Hornburg. Theoden asks Aragorn for time, and Aragorn and Gimli pop out of a postern gate on a little cliff off to the right of the causeway. So we've talked about this before, but we have to talk about it again. The dwarf tossing stuff here is pretty gross. Dwarf tossing is a real and dangerous practice that causes harm and death, and is demeaning in the process. Never mind that it often occurs in further unsafe con conditions, such as at bars when alcohol has been ingested. We talked about this back in episode 15, our Gimli Sode, citing Peter Dinklage's vocal advocacy on the issue as well as the work of Leah Smith at the Center for Disability Rights. This is a total unforced L. You don't need the gap to be that big or have this at all. Just have Gimli and Aragorn arrive from a higher point or some other back way. Yep, yep. Um, uh, yeah. So one of the things that I feel like is really important here, and I realize we haven't really done the episode on on not really we haven't done the episode on what a workshop at all. So some of what I'm about to say may be a little context free, but I think this is kind of a really good 
example of of a consistent problem throughout these films, um, which is um, maybe, you know, I think it might be easy to be like, oh, it's just 90s brain or it's just 2000s brain or it's just like Aussies and Aussie junior brain and oh, what are they like? But I, but I don't actually think like you can chalk it up to any of these simple things like uh, these movies consistently have a problem of taking things that originally don't have this like outright bigotry in them and then superimposing the, this sort of bigotry and, and whether it's um, this uh, just fucking batshit example of dwarf tossing or if it's the misogyny with Eowyn or if it's any number of sort of things, you know, some of the racism and, and how the orcs are portrayed that goes above and beyond the already racist uh, orcs as described by by Tolkien. The, these movies have a consistent problem with doing this. Uh, and I think one of the things that, that really makes this sort of interesting and kind of galling to me is this is very much a kind of carbon copy of Sam Raimi's Army of Darkness, as we've talked about over and over and over again. And I would not call Sam Raimi a paragon of social progressivism. Um, I would go so far as to say he's he's pretty much just an open misogynist uh, and, and really, really not good and not socially progressive. Um, and yet you don't see this kind of shit in in army of darkness um there is a moment for you know and i mean the the especially the climbing up the wall thing like bruce campbell literally does exactly that in in army of darkness um and and there is this um n there's no need to bring this stuff in here and so i think it's always kind of interesting that there was such a consistent push in these movies to bring this stuff in um and and i think it reflects really badly on the creative team. Um, and I also, just because I love grinding this axe, it also um, points out the flaw in this idea that like having more women in writer's rooms will necessarily Im improve, like make the writing more socially progressive because like there are women's fingerprints all over the script uh, and this shit is still included. So like obviously having women in the room didn't fucking fix this. Um, but I do think there is like, and when we get into the Weta workshop and Weta digital episode later, um, there is a culture of um bigotry ableism misogyny racism um that goes hand in hand that is like allegedly endemic in weta um it's, and it's two sort of subsidiary uh, groups um allegedly endemic there that is also very much tied up in um anti-labor activities so uh no you know small wonder that um organizations that are very much opposed not just opposed to unions like on you know uh, having a sort of closed shop floor for their production but like so aggressively opposed that they support the the sort of legal um degradation of the rights of workers and and the destruction of the right to uh to collective bargaining in, in an industry in an entire industry and in an entire country um small wonder these things are connected and and i think it is important to um remind ourselves that that, that the kinds of people who think this shit is funny are also the kinds of people who um are against workplace democracy and these two things are inextricably linked um and and so you you we need to always sort of be vigilant against this kind of stuff and to remind ourselves that in an increasingly truly democratized uh workplace truly democratized economy um it would be easier to combat these things and also to remind ourselves the kinds of people who link these two things up um in, in the ways that they do God, I don't know how to just transition out of that, but uh, very well said. No, that's fine. Uh, please edit out my stumbling and silence <laughs> after your comments. So anyway, they make the causeway and then fight off the Uruk soldiers there. They get the second of three blasts of the Fellowship leitmotif during the Battle of Helm's Deep. 
It's been the music for the three hunters, and it accompanied Legolas's shield surfing last time, and the other two hunter and the other two hunters are honored as such here. Theoden gets fresh barricades up on the doors, and in like a reverse shining shot, we see him yell at Aragorn to get out of there before placing the final board in the broken door. Man, if he said, here's Theoden, that would have been great. (laughs) This is the end of the comeback and the start of the big heat, where the enemies look to win by bringing out their big guns, quite literally in this case, as the siege artillery shows up. Giant crossbows fire giant grappling hooks up the giant walls of the Hornburg, and up the ropes come not only giant ladders, but manned ladders at that. Or should I say orked ladders? <laughs> as battalions of troops are able to swarm the walls immediately once the ladders are secure. Two ladders are stabilized, but Legolas, my MVP of the battle, is able to take out the support ropes of the last ladder. It goes crashing down in a very satisfying smash, taking out the troops on the ladder and those unfortunate enough to be underneath it. In the big battles in Latro, which is Helm's Deep, uh, Polar Gear, uh, Minas Tirith, and then there's a couple others that I can't remember because my brain is shattered. And one of the key kind of things you can do in the background while you're waiting for the kind of bigger missions inside the battles is to take down these ladders. And it is quite possibly the most satisfying thing I've ever done in a video game. And it really does, like, even though you're just hitting, like, you know, the one and two key on your keyboard, you do get to feel like Legolas as you're doing it. And it's the most, like, ooh, monkey brain entertained thing I've ever, like, experienced in a video game. But, like, if you have ever been on the fence about playing Latro, just for the ability to do that, like, ladder drop alone, you should absolutely play Latro. (laughs) Legolas next throws a rope down for Aragorn and Gimli who grab it and are able to just clear out of the way before a secondary force of Urukai reaches the gate I've already called out Legolas' superhuman strength but I also love the rear projection shot of uh, Aragorn and Gimli being pulled up in the foreground while battles along the walls and ladders happen in the background. Yes. Oh, and this is just like, you know, I've already said the Errol Flynn stuff, but this is like, this is so like, mm, Kino, like it's so classic movie magic. I'm, mm-hmm, I'm in such mm-hmm. a good mood about all of this stuff as well, because I just watched the 1933 King Kong for the first time last night and just had my mind fucking blown by it um and so like between watching army of darkness for the first time a couple weeks ago and watching king kong uh last night i just feel like i look at the scene and i like hear the angels sing for how like good and and sort of um not just competent like but like self-awarely competent all of the kind of special effects and staging work is here because it's not just the sort of swashbuckling kind of um moves in in the sort of general sense like this kind of air rope lift is like is the fucking beating heart of cinema in some ways i mean all of the great movies do one of these scenes and you know in in uh a new hope in star wars a new hope it's luke and leia escaping the stormtroopers and you get that brilliant john williams fanfare of of the force theme um, as they swing across and it, it's oh god aren't these guys so cool and you get it an army of darkness and it's you know bruce campbell mugging at the camera and oh isn't that so cool and it's just one of these things that so many movies try to replicate and only the best ones really succeed at doing it well um, and this is obviously one of these movies that just succeeds at doing it so fucking well but i think it's so good to see in things like the battle at helm's deep or elsewhere throughout the, the this series where they've clearly learned the lesson of 
other filmmakers and and know what it is to really get someone's blood pumping and and to connect to wider cinematic history as they're doing so and like god this bit chef's kiss I'm really glad you uh, mentioned King Kong because I had not thought about it, but I remember when I watched the 1933 version the first time a couple years ago, I think it is a shot where like the two human characters are like cliffside climbing and you can see the T-Rex and King Kong fighting behind them. And the minute I saw that shot in King Kong, I'm like, this is exactly like the two towers shot. Like it just instantly pinged for me. And I I think King Kong is one of the most obvious uh, touch points for Peter Jackson, given that's his next movie after (laughs) Return of the King. Um, But yeah, I agree. This is just some classic classic hollywood stuff um this is really kind of where this production team is at its best um when it's trying to kind of recreate the style of like a old age hollywood stuff through the technology and tools that they have these days yeah well and it's like that old kind of adage like good artist copy great artist steal and and this is really it like it is not just a question of like stealing everything wholesale because then you end up in a shitty boring plagiarism thing but it is what should we steal from this and why? And having that level of discernment, because if you compare it to something like, for example, already mentioned, so I'm not the first one to kick down the story today, um, in the Rings of Power, where so much is like obviously just lifted, there wasn't much discernment in what they were lifting from the Lord of the Rings film. So it all just feels a bit dry and shitty. Whereas this, they've been quite discerning in what they lift and why. And so it shows that kind of higher level of engagement with with the art form and, and sort of higher sense of awareness of what what works in, in cinema and what doesn't. And that kind of adds on to this whole, you know, you can clearly place this on a timeline of rope pulls throughout cinematic history um, and every single sort of good example. Or like if you were to do a list of all of the good examples, this would necessarily be one. And it would never be con- consigned to the sort of the dustbin of badly executed rope pulls. And that is in so many ways just kind of a metaphor for the 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 wider series. Yeah. Ah, God, I really hate going off on a rings of power tangent here, (laughs) but there's like two things going on. Like first, you made this point way back when I think we were actually talking about Star Wars when we did this, but it's like things now are obsessed with referencing itself. Um, So everything that's like kind of the rings of power is really trying to reference is just stuff from the Lord of the Rings, as opposed to the broader medium of television or cinema. Um, Whereas um, this is obviously pulling from all sorts of other movies, but it's not just pulling from this movie or that movie, it's like kind of a clear like ideology of like, we want war movies, we want swashbuckling movies, we want monster movies. And that's kind of what we're going to use to build our um, like visual aesthetic for these Lord of the Rings films, as opposed to just like whatever a director liked. Um, this one feels like they actually thought about we want we want to have these influences, but but we want to stay within these bounds. So everything kind of coheres well. Um, it's not just like, oh, well, this is a shot from you know, Army of Darkness, but that's a shot from Kramer versus Kramer or something like that. <laughs> um, we're just really looking for, uh, like, just kind of so cohesion in the references. Yes, yes, no, absolutely. And, and I think, like, although I guess he's not really, well, maybe he is kind of typically associated with the, the sort of new Hollywood, no, he isn't, no, he definitely isn't, the new Hollywood generation of of directors. So that's like your Spielbergs, your uh, your Lucases, your Coppolas. Um, the, the, the thing about those guys is, like, they were very aggressively aware of genre films um but but we're very good at making these kind of conglomerations these like frankensteins of all of these genre films and mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. if you look at like the uh, the other, one of the other movies i was watching um for the first time in like 10 years uh the other night was the the 79 superman 78 superman um and 
that is like you can see in that the the kind of genesis of not just like superhero movies writ large but like the genesis of disaster films um and that comes like the ability for that to spawn new new genres in the way that it did or helped to do um is because it was able to look back at a whole bunch of genre films that that preceded it and take what was best. And so, you know, you've got Marlon Brando <laughs> mugging it Zardoz style in the start. And that's just fucking crazy. But that's like pure old wood sort of sci-fi. And then you've got the like classic kind of coming in a page and 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 the 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 great sort of disaster movie elements to the end. And and all of these things are pulling from genre films that were like singular genres films before. It, you know, mostly from the 30s through the 50s, um, and then combining that into something new, and by combining that to create that new that new language and, and kind of cinematic vernacular, other things were able to draw on it, and that is what they're so good, as you're saying here, with Lord of the Rings, is picking and choosing which bits of this do you uh, then used to create the wider genre language of fantasy film. And like, I know I went off on one in, in the Odds Gileath episode about how, my unhappiness with some of the horror stuff, but like, some of these things when you're trying to basically create a genre from the ground up are just going to miss. And like, that's just how it goes. And as long as you're like 75% of the way there, you're, you're going to have a, a pretty significant sort of historical cultural document on the go. So Theoden has to fall all the way back to the inner keep and the Uruks overrun the place after they eventually do break through the main gate. This is my favorite shot in the meat of the battle. While Theoden yells, fall back, fall back, we get this overhead shot, a single cut, as we track Legolas, Aragorn, and Gimli falling back, watching them work their way up the stairs and round the bends. Legolas has that dog in him, unrelentingly murking dudes with his arrows as we move back inside. But the Urukai are too many, and they all hole up in the Great Hall. The film cuts away from Helm's Deep here, and when we return, we'll see the Urukai have raised Saruman's banners, a white hand on a black field. It would be funny if this is where the film decided to embrace Saruman of multicolors and had him fly the gayest flag ever, but alas, it was not to be. Holy shit, that's what turfs think any, like, gay pride marches. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Christ. So the next part of the wrestling analogy is the big comeback, and of course, one of the most iconic scenes of this trilogy, uh, pretty much a trilogy of wall-to-wall iconic scenes. <laughs> but before we blow some horns, we get just a little more time to wallow in the crapulence. We watch as the Uruks pound the door with the breaching acid. We cut to some ladies in the caves, including Eowyn, who I believe gets her second to last appearance in this film, looking scared. Yeah, classic shit. I'm not going to harp on it anymore. Everyone gets the point. I think this is bullshit and bad and ridiculous. Uh, However, and I think I have mentioned this a couple times before, but there is in the behind the scenes reel cut footage of Eowyn with a sword repelling orcs in the glittering caves while she screams, motherfucker. And I cannot stress enough how much better my life would be if instead of an extended edition cut where we get more of Boromir and Faramir fucking about like lads on tour in fucking Malagar Ibiza, we instead got the motherfucker cut where Eowyn gets to go ape shit in the caves. And like, there's not really a good kind of character reason for it. I would still think it was stupid that she was at Helm's Deep at all. I would still think all of this was like bad and dumb, but like, it would be just enough of that like catering to my monkey brain that i would like shut up about the rest of this and instead we just get like mm, bitches be scared and scene i'm like what a massive cell phone 
Uh, if you're one of our very loyal fans, please take to Twitter and Instagram and start the trend <laughs> hashtag release the motherfucker cut. Um, maybe with enough pressure, we can get Warner Brothers to release that for us. <laughs> Bernard Hill is once again doing fucking work, his hair matted down, exhausted, his eyes utterly defeated. Aragorn has gambling order the men and women to make for the mountain pass here as well. My favorite part of this moment is when Theoden's all, it is over, and Aragorn is all, you said this fortress would never fall, <laughs> etc. and so forth. Vigo and Bloom, during this uh, line of dialogue, are lifting up a bench to move to barricade the door. Vigo picks up his half of the bench, <laughs> but then turns around to complete his lines to Theoden. <laughs> Watch Bloom in the background here, who makes for the door thinking Bigo's got half the weight, and then drops the table looking back as he realizes it's just him. <laughs> oh, what a metaphor for something there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so let's get to the fireworks factory. Theoden's charge. So from a film-only point of view, my read was that when Aragorn says, ride out and meet them at first, it's a diversionary delay tactic to allow those in the caves to work up the pass and possibly put a rear guard in place. For Rohan and its people, as he puts it. But when Gimli chimes in that the sun is rising, is when Aragorn remembers Gandalf's words, which conveniently replays here as they look up at sunlight pouring through an open window, which always gives me a vaguely churchy feeling. <laughs> Usually, usually I'd be against this sort of audio flashback to remind the audience of earlier dialogue, but I actually very much like it here. Aragorn is literally running those words through his head at the moment, and it has been two hours since we've seen the White Wizard. There's also a little bit of a parallel to the end of Fellowship, where Frodo flashes back to what Gandalf said about what to do with the time given to you. <laughs> you know what it's Sorry, I'm losing it. It's also incredibly similar to the Simpsons episode where Lisa is Joan of Arc and they show God as light pouring <laughs> through the church. <laughs> so, so there we are. Uh, Aragorn handshake Lisa Simpson hearing voices through windows. Um, so, so I think this is fine. Um, I'm also like you, usually against audio flashbacks, but basically fine with it here. But I'm also extra fine with it here because it's much funnier given that Theoden has no fucking clue that Gandalf's meant to be coming back because Gandalf delivered those lines to Aragorn in the stables. So like Aragorn is like, oh, it'll be fine. We're going to go out, buy some time for Gandalf, who's going to show up and save the day. And Theoden is like having his last shot of sake because he's about to go fucking kamikaze up in this bitch. They have two very different motivations in this scene. And I think it's actually quite funny that it is abundantly clear on each of their faces how different this really is. Yeah, they're just like, yeah, let's just get this fucking over with. I'm ready to throw the <laughs> towel in. <sighs> we also hear the nature theme crescendo here once again, albeit not as triumphant as its iteration during the last March of the Ents. But it is worth noting that we haven't seen the but it is worth noting that we haven't yet seen the attack on Isengard, so this music is playing here roughly at the same time it would be in the Merry and Pippin story. And the sun is as much a part of nature as trees, so there's a thematic cohesion there as well. Yes, and Mary, Mary, nope, not Mary. Oh my God, I'm doing like anti-Hobbit racism. It's Sam that does the whole, and the sun will shine out again, not Mary. Mary's speech is basically forgettable, so never mind. I was going to be like, oh wow, and Mary's at the same time talking about how the sun will shine out again and all will be good, but it's not because Sam's still in the shit, so... Forget about it. 
All right, so let's just in turn talk about the cool shit that happens from here on out. Uh, the first would probably be Bernard Hill's fourth Aolinga speech, like the not for wrath, not for ruin, fell deeds awake. Um, it's just cool. And Theoden wears a really cool helmet while he says all this. <laughs> it is really good. It's still not my favorite. And I can't remember if I pointed this out when we got to it ages and ages and ages ago. But Aomer's helmet has the little horsey down the nose. And I think that mm-hmm. is like the best costuming choice ever made um theoden's is still really cool here i think he's got the best drip of anyone in these movies um but i also think it's kind of nice that like as he is kind of embracing death preparing to do his last sort of thing as as king um his his kind of instinct is to really fall back into that kings of old and deliver one of these like high tolkienian speeches which is very different like in the books he's constantly pumping the shit out as he is because just so many of the the characters in the books talk like that but like i think there's something quite significant to the way that it is done here as this is really his last hurrah and though we know for having now watched this on rewatch that he survives it at least until the next movie um we don't necessarily know that given the sort of logic and 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 time presentation of of the the movie itself and so for theoden in these last moments to finally be rising up um to be the king he ought to have been but but chose or was not allowed to have been um there is something ultra tragic about this charge um sad that he's sort of getting just getting a hold of his life um right in time for everything to collapse Oh, that that just unlocks something for me, because I do remember the first time watching this in theaters, and I thought Theoden might die here. Like, I knew, like, Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli and Gandalf probably have to, um, you know, survive. I just kind of figured they were just part of the team. Um, But, like, Theoden seems like a character who would show up for a movie, be really awesome, and then kind of die at the end at his best moment, Um, especially with the speech and the charge and all that. Um, I Like like I said, I had no idea what was going to happen watching this movie the first time so um it just seemed like that might happen and especially with uh fellowship ending with boromir's death um i could see something similar kind of happening here just not knowing what was coming oh wow good call good call yeah i mean i'm so screwed over because i just knew all of the memes about these movies well in advance of ever getting to see them but yeah man that makes it so sad that there almost seemed like a narrative inevitability to his death here and like god he's lucky that he subverts it but only for a couple minutes really (laughs) So this scene also completes Gimli's character arc. That arc being earlier in the movie, he said he was a rider. And this time he admits, no, he's not a rider. But he does win first chair for lead tuba and gets to blow the horn of Helm Hammerhand, which has a mouthpiece that reminds me of an old Victrola. The horn itself is built into the Hornburg, which, nice. And the one low angle shot of the tower makes it seem like the entire castle is the horn, which is a real cool image uh, to me. Emily, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, but the horn isn't really described in the books. Nope, not really. Just a horn. Yeah. Uh, Rereading the chapter, it almost reads more that it was just how the sound carries in the deeping gorge as opposed to like one giant horn. It's probably a bunch of trumpeteers sounding a charge. Yes. Yeah. And so this is actually one of the things that's like really common to... Uh, all of the books, really. Anytime music shows up in uh, the Lord of the Rings books, it takes on... um, 
a sort of, I don't want to call it magical, but it, it sort of transcends the the sort of physical or prosaic. Um, so you've got Helm Hammerhand's horn here, and you've got the drums or lack thereof uh, in Moria, and then you've got the horn of the Rohirrim when they arrive at uh, at the Pelennor Fields or Boromir's horn, the horn of Gondor, um, where sound, the sound of a, a, an instrument plays isn't really bound by the instrument itself or by the sort of container that is air. It can kind of go above and beyond. And and I think like um, the lack of a description of a solid description of the the horn of Helm Hammerhand compared to the the incredible importance of the the sound, the note that it makes, is, is just kind of one of these things where Tolkien is inviting us or instructing us to to not sweat the details and to care more about the effect of something. And and I think like in in the battle itself, where certainly in the book, um, very little of the actual detail is described. It's it's more sort of general sense of movement this way and that and, and emotions and, and 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 sort of general status updates. Um it is it is one of these things where it is meant to be a clear kind of a reminder that we have to tap back into things that are not just prosaic wartime uh, things. It's not a fucking alarm clock. It is it is the rallying call of a dying kingdom. So the soundtrack goes silent for the first horn blow, which starts off the Odin's charge. But then as the score kicks back in, the horn will ring out a couple more times. It's a really nice way to intermingle the sound design with the score, as Emily kind of just hinted at. So the charge is super cool, shot on the practical set they built for the Hornburg, and you can see plenty of behind-the-scenes footage of them recreating the charge with horses and extras like sitting in the narrow stairwells and walkways of Helm's Deep. All the Rohirrim are fully armored and helmed in a way we haven't really seen since the three hunters met Eomir out in the plains nearly three hours ago. Theoden's helm, sorry to correct Emily here, also has the gold molted horse oh, so as a does, nose guard. So it does, yeah. Several also have green flowing capes, which will match well with the green banners being flown during the charge as well. Yeah, um, I, I think this is one of these things where we've seen so much of the drabness of the Rohir costumes throughout uh, throughout the two towers. And I, I wish they'd gone a little harder with the, the capes. Like, I wish it had looked like a fucking football marching band. You know what I mean? Like, make it look, what is it, Ohio State? Um, like, make it look like the Ohio State marching band. Have everyone be in green so we really, like, cannot possibly miss the symbolism of this green banner showing up again as this is truly the Rohirrim come to full power. Um, instead, they kind of, you know, sprinkle it in because I think they're a little worried about looking too corny with any symbolism. They don't want to be too heavy-handed. But, like, if you're going to make a fucking awful joke about throwing dwarves, you can be a little campy in your costuming decisions. I wouldn't sweat that. I love the upshots as the forces of Rohan ride by, laying into the Uruks, really using the camera angle to show the visible shift in power, or as Gandalf would say, the turn of the tide. Out of the main gate, the charge goes down the causeway, which I love watching them plow the road here. And I got that phrase from Bill Pullman in Independence Day when they need to clear a path for that one guy to ram his plane up the alien's asshole. <laughs> If you focus on the background on the right side of frame, you'll also see the elevated hill that Gandalf and Eomer will charge down here in just a minute. <laughs> I wish, as part of uh, committing to the bit more fully, they had given uh, Theoden a Mr. Plow Letterman jacket for this. 
What, what? How does that song go? Oh, no, Theo it's Candyman. That's my name. Um, that name again is. Oh, oh, I thought you were doing that Simpsons, Mr. Plow. I was. Never I was. Mind. Isn't it, Mr. K- isn't it the Candyman? Oh no, that's Mr. Plow. That's my name. That name again is Mr. Plow. <laughs> right? Maybe it isn't Candyman. What was I thinking? It was. <laughs> oh well. Oh, uh, uh, good luck to you editing this episode. <laughs> <clears throat> So I think I'm legally allowed here to impose a gag order on Emily in order to praise heap on Gandalf, which in Tom's wrestling analogy is the finish, which I'm sure I do not have to explain to you. The single horse and rider rearing up in all its glory atop the hill ahead of a dawning sun is one of those indelible images from these movies. The close-up of Gandalf is also great. The white rider in all his glory drawing the attention of all the Uruks below as he sets Theoden King stands alone. But he's not alone. Up comes Eomer, who beckons his Eorred to him, and I love the shots of all these horses cresting the hill into line of sight, garnering roars from the Uruks below as they look to reform their defensive lines. Yeah, there's like there's really not many scenes in this movie, movies I should say, that make me cry. Like I, even Boromir's death doesn't really ever get me. This always gets me. Always gets me. Whenever it's the two of them up there with the the light coming both from behind and in front of them and and just that kind of catharsis, that cinematic catharsis when they show up is like Every single time, I at least get goosebumps, if not full teary-eyed. And there's something about it where, like, I, I just, it's just this perfect confluence of everything done right to get to this point that, like, I hate Gandalf. I wish he'd taken one, like, one of those fucking pikes, like, straight to the stomach. Um, however, I will allow it for this because this is just so perfect, so finely tuned, and I don't think anything in terms of, like, sheer enthusiasm has like no other movies have ever really matched that level for me at all yeah no i'm the same way even like shadow facts like rearing up his legs as they first cut to gandalf like everything is so precise here it's just like perfectly shot the score the sound it's fucking the best movie of all time (laughs) (laughs) anyways aomer yells to the keep and the iconic slow-mo, low-angle shots coupled with the wide shots of the entire force stampeding down the hill combine, sunlight seemingly leading the way to create a frisson of excitement all through my body. It's just perfectly done. The score here includes the nature theme and Gandalf's white rider theme played to maximum emotionality. I'm no music expert, and I'm going to try and paraphrase a breakdown of this musical sequence by Frank Lehman in his book, Hollywood Harmony, Musical Wonder, and the Sound of Cinema. There's two key things to point out. First, the Rohan leitmotif we hear at this point are in D, oscillating from the minor to the major to give it the victory feeling in lieu of the melancholy often invoked by the sad Rohan strings. And when Gandalf is first seen on the hill, Shore does a dramatic shift from B-flat minor up to E minor to create the upward emotional swing in the music. It's both dramatic in the shift, but also heavenly, meant to invoke the suddenness of Gandalf's arrival. Yeah. Um. So E minor as a as a key is 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 interesting. Um. Because it's really popular in heavy metal. Um. Like off the top of my head, I'm gonna get one of these wrong. Please don't owe me, everybody online, for getting one. Of- forgetting one of these songs wrong but it's like master of puppets by metallica i think like come as you are by nirvana possibly another one bites the dust uh 
Breathe, Pink Floyd. There's a couple others um, that are all in E minor, and and it's got because like the kind of bass note, the tonic note of uh, of E minor is so low on a is the lowest note on a on a guitar. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's just beloved in heavy metal. But I love that there's this kind of possibility for um, you could just overdub this kind of second part of this music with Master of Puppets, and it would still fit with what they are like tonally what howard Shore was tonally aiming for there and i think that kind of heavy metal like it, you know what actually one of the best movies i hate to say this but one of the best movies to have ever kind of picked up on what like a kind of needle drop should really do is unfortunately uh fucking hell i hate myself for saying this it is the the third star trek star trek beyond i think search uh, for spock the oh, oh the, the new one the, the new beastie one. boys one yeah uh, <laughs> oh i guess multiple do beastie boys but yes, yeah i know what you yes, want it's exactly uh. that when they do the beastie boys drop at the end and like everyone's kind of known it's coming and and everyone's kind of been waiting for it because they've been teasing it but they drop that beastie boys and you're like holy fuck that's amazing and this is what that is as well and i like the idea that the that there is that connection to heavy, heavy metal as a genre which is just nothing but that kind of holy fuck, uh, music kind of feeling. Yeah, no, that's a great call. I never really put that together. But yeah, even like Metallica's Nothing Else Matters, that's absolutely E minor. And that's more of a, I don't know if I'd call it a ballad, but it's definitely not like a hard heavy metal song per se. Um, And I think a lot of that has to do because I think its relative major is G, which is like the most happy and like normal bass (laughs) um, key to play something in. So it's just kind of very obvious that like the minor, the relative minor of G would be E minor. Um, So that's why it would get such heavy play in so many metal songs and stuff like that. Nice. Yeah. Hey, I know something about yeah, music. I was going to say, uh, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> nothing, not music expert at all. Uh-huh. Sure. <laughs> yeah. That's that's how you cut off criticism on the internet, by saying you don't know shit before you actually say the shit that you know. <laughs> Classic. Uh, but what else is there to say about this charge? I don't know. I talked about the sun and Spears part last time when we talked about Braveheart. The sun in your eyes is bad enough when playing volleyball. I can't even imagine what it'd be like in an actual battle, especially if the wizard is somehow making it even brighter than it is. Uh, I also love the flying heads and limbs as the cavalry breaks the line. Also in the wide shots, you can see the dead Uruks laying on the causeway while Gandalf charges down the other side of the frame. It's just that attention to detail that makes me love these movies. Yeah, uh, the more detail work is the the amazing foley, the amazing sound effects in this. When, when the actual clash crash happens um we go from sort of purely sound effect or not sound effect from purely score to sound effect score to get that kind of um cinematic but realism mix and and there's just something so incredible about the sound of the metal hitting metal the orcs yelling and screaming the the kind of rallying cries of gandalf and all of their harem and it's just such a good sort of almost dreamlike mix that really brings us from this like sort of high shining gold beautiful brilliant moment of of the the this the charge into the and now we've arrived back to the real battle and this this light this goodness is on our side and it's going to take the sort of um work a day sound of uh, and quite horrifying sound of war and and heighten it just add this little element of the magical to it In this scene in the movies, we are only battling the orcs. Uh, this shouldn't matter. This shouldn't matter if you don't have 
uh, a little thing I like to call my specific brand of brain damage. Um, but it does actually matter. And I think there is a, there is an interesting reason why it matters. Um, because in Helm's Deep, uh, in the books, it is not just the orcs that are fighting. There are, in fact, men, the hillmen, the Dunlendings are there. Um, and they are a really key component of Saruman's strategy at uh, Helm's Deep. And they're also um, a, an important sort of site for um, lending a, a kind of more political nuance and texture to the story of the Rohirrim. Um, we've talked about this in some of the previous episodes, but the Rohirrim effectively, by taking over uh, land that was gifted to them, they, the Rohirrim were previously uh, a nomadic people, and then uh, for their help at the crossings, the Battle of the Crossings of Por Poros, the Storied Carrion granted them the land of Kelenarthon um, in the west of, of Gondor, and so they settled down uh, in the land that would later become Rohan, and in doing, in so doing, they, they kind of displaced these other people, these other nomadic pastoral people, the Dunlendings, and forced them back over into the Enid Waith, um, and Dunland of course, uh, to further to the further west. Um, Saruman, uh, as we are able to see, I think actually just in the extended edition of these films, um, is able to play uh, on that uh, Dunlending um, anger uh, towards having been kicked off of their fucking land. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, the Dunlendings join the cause, um, Saruman's cause, and and sort of latterly uh, Sauron's cause, and and march to fight at Helm's Deep because they would love to get one uh, over these guys. They do not really show up in uh, Helm's Deep in, in the movie because it just works because it's easier to just mow down hundreds of thousands of these things if they're just these like bodies of pure and unadulterated evil with no possibility of salvation. Um, that is actually not a problem that is elided in uh, the in the book. Um, it, the, the question of the Dunlendings who are indeed present at um, Helm's Deep at the Battle of the Hornburg and what to do with them afterwards is dealt with. Um, and it's dealt with in a way that is important for two different reasons. Um, one, it's dealt with because it shows that within this sort of moral universe of um, uh, that, that Tolkien has created, um, there is a difference between the men who align with with Saruman and or Sauron and the orcs who do. Um, and the orcs are totally evil and totally irreparably sort of fucked. Um, and the men are not. There is some sort of possibility for the, the salvation of men. That's important. That that aligns with what we know about Tolkien's uh, religion. So so that's cool. Uh, I don't think we need to talk too much about that. We can set that one to the side. Um, the other reason mm -hmm. it's important is because it's used to show um, growth and strength on behalf of uh, of the Rohirrim. Um, there is a character who does not at all show up in these movies called Erkenbrand, and he is the uh, he is the not the Thane. Holy shit! What is he? He's he's like the the fuck. I can't remember the the noble. He's the Lord of the Westfold. Uh, formerly retired third marshal, first marshal of the mark, um, which basically means he used to be a super high-ranking general and is now just a lord uh, of a big amount of land, uh, including the land that uh, the Hornburg is, is on. Um, he suggests at the end of the battle that um, the Dunlendings, who are shit scared that the Rohirrim are just going to massacre them um, in full uh, because of their participation in the Battle of the Hornburg, um, he says to them, actually, no, we will not be killing you all. We may have once done that, but we will not be doing it now. Um, you are going to help us rebuild the Hornburg. Uh, you will help us rebuild Helm's Deep, and then we will send you on your merry way. You will fuck off back over the mountains, and you will not bother us again. Um, but because you you were all planning to die here, and we are not going to kill you, um, that will be enough to keep you the fuck away from us. Um, and it is harsh, it is of course harsh, but, but it is a site of growth because there is this acknowledgement that this war, this 
constant skirmishing between the the Dunlandings and the Rohirrim would have at one point necessitated um, wiping out. Not necessitated, but the the Rohirrim response would have necessitated wiping out uh, the Dunlandings. And instead, now that they've got you know Aragorn here that is showing them that 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 the history that and the end of history, the end of the world will not come. Mm-hmm will not necessarily come uh, at the hands of Sauron. There is a possibility of a future beyond that war. Um, the Rohirrim are learning that they don't need to approach everything with the, such a, a hard retributive approach to, to justice, and they can instead take something that is sort of more about mending and um, loving all things that grow and are not barren. Um, and, and this is a really good, important growth point for for. Uh, for the Rohirrim as people, um, there is a there is something interesting to be said about the fact that it is not Theoden who decides this. Theoden actually delegates this decision out. Um, one, that's because he's a king on he's a, he's a king on uh, the death side. He knows that he's old as balls and also was probably going to die during this war, and so it's good to sort of shore up the strength of his kingdom uh, for the next generation. Um, but it's also Theoden is. Uh, as we are led to believe in the books, not really the kind of guy who would make this decision um, and and has realized that the decision-making that he is um, used to has now been made pretty much overnight, uh, totally outdated. Um, and, and so there is also growth on his part as he is, accepts the death of his reign and the death of his own death um, that, that the Rohirrim are able to grow and, and sort of become new again, more in the model of the Gondorine. Yeah, no, I think all that's great. I don't really have anything to add with the book stuff, um, but I can use this as an opportunity to continue grinding my axe against the extended editions. <laughs> um, I think I previ- previously noted, it might have been during our Fellowship extended edition episode, that Urkenbrand would be a great guy just to do for an extended edition. Um, but even just the Dunlendings, like, they are set up in this movie. We have that early scene where Saruman's like rallying them to attack the Westfold. Um, I would totally have gone for like one little like one minute scene here at the end where, you know, Theoden brings them back into the king's justice or I, I, whatever, like gives them forgiveness, allows them to go, allows them to like join the army if they want. I don't I don't really know. But I feel like that's definitely something that they could have just followed up on in the extended edition instead of having like Eowyn cook for Aragorn poorly. Um, it just... I don't know. It seems like it was already there in the theatrical edition and just adding a little bit more would have been nice to see. But I also get that they just want the Battle of Helm's Deep to just be a, what, unqualified win? <laughs> um, like, we don't have to think too hard about it. It's like, the, your brain should have turned off like about 20 minutes ago is basically what it's saying. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think, I, I just really think they didn't want anything to really get in the way of Sam's speech. It was like action, 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 Sam's speech, and a movie. Um, and I just thought that maybe um, the extended edition could have addressed that a little bit better. Yeah. And I think this also makes the case for having done, (laughs) sorry to say it, but six movies instead of three, because having Helm's Deep be the end of the movie um, that does not involve Sam and Frodo walking directly into Mordor um, or Sam walking directly into Mordor means that you can deal with some of that stuff in the denouement of movie number three. Um, and it gives you time to get into some of that moral complexity around this question of who 
who do we execute en masse? Who do we punish at the end of a war? Um, what are the crimes of war? Like whose crime is the worst? Is it the victors? Is it the losers? How do we handle that? Which are all questions that um, I would say actually are not um, adequately dress- addressed in, in Tolkien's writing. But as part of um, adapting, a mo- adapting a book into a movie, you should be able to find some way to build upon what was already done, especially with the benefit of like 60 years of hindsight, 40 years of hindsight. Um like that, that could have been the thing to have approached instead of spending five minutes on a dwarf tossing joke, two minutes on Eowyn crying all of the time, and then later in Return of the King, just some like fucking crunching skulls. Use a bit more like economy in your storytelling, use a bit more efficiency to, to focus on the things that are more interesting and that are ways of improving what was left sort of in, like inadequately addressed in the source text. Yeah, I also want to say this could have been something they addressed in Return of the King when they returned back to Edoras and they like kind of celebrate the battle. Yep. Um, they could have included something, not necessarily in that scene, but just like next to it, um, where they kind of address kind of some of the fallout as opposed to like everyone just getting drunk and then waiting for the next thing to happen. Yep, 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 yep. So as per usual, we are going to wind down our episode by thanking our $10 patrons as well as some of our $5 patrons. So today we would like to thank Johnny Flores Jr., a.k.a. Lothamana Palinke. Ed the Revelator, a.k.a. Silent Spider, Guardian of Carathungal. Maddie Hugh, a.k.a. Idrenor of Kolkortad. Matthew Abbott, a.k.a. Aranwa Minyatar. Zach Newman, Lakwamelme. <laughs> and Cam Lewis, a.k.a. Sal Quindil. And hello once again, Jonathan DeHaan. We are hard at work at your name. I'm so close, I promise. And for our $5 patron, patrons, fuck, every time, for our $5 <laughs> patrons, we would like to thank Maddie, a.k.a. Alastari, Alastariel of the La Salia. And uh, Lenny Not Dead, a.k.a. Rizorno of Eranor. And that closes the book on this episode of My Brother, My Captain, My Podcast. Our email is mybrothermycaptainmypodcast at gmail.com and mybromycatmypod on Twitter and Instagram. You can support this podcast by subscribing to patreon.com slash mybromycatmypod, where you'll get early access to episodes and exclusive bonus content. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. You can find me covering A Song of Ice and Fire over at Nauticast ASO IAF. And I've been Emily, also known as JR Tweeting, which is where you can find me on Twitter, where I will be sawing off the rope that Legolas is using to haul Aragorn and Gimli up the wall. Toasting a pint to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. Ithraglir and Drethion, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please like and review our podcast wherever you may be listening. So until next time, remember, I would have followed you, my brother, my captain, my king.